Like Nate said, we're kicking off a new series today called Hopeful, and we're covering kind of a, a range of topics, a short list of topics where many of us tend to feel anxiety, we tend to feel stress, we tend to kind of maybe lean towards despair. Some of us feel that in broken relationships. Maybe there's a marital relationship or a personal friendship or a parent-child relationship that feels like it's that's wobbling, and we, we need hope for that. Others of us, we need hope for a financial situation that is tenuous. Either we're, we're in debt now or we're looking for work or we're afraid about retirement and we just feel like the walls are closing in, that we're not, we're not in control. We need hope there. Others of us have recently experienced a loss and we're trying to untangle this massive knot of grief and despair. We need somebody to walk with us. And then others of us, are, we're trying to, trying to push through a recent person, personal failure. Maybe we've made a choice or a series of choices. Maybe we've got a hurt habit or a hang-up that continues to spiral us towards self-destruction and it's wreaking havoc in our spiritual and personal relationships. We don't know what to do. Last year, the Centers of Disease Control said that for the first time in U.S. history, two years in a row, life expectancy in our nation has actually gone down. And this is alarming because the theory says that when there's economic viability, when there's education, when a country has medical resources and research, life expectancy should go up. So the fact that it's not is cause for concern. And the researchers have a theory. They say that between 2006 and 2016, two areas that were causing death were abnormally high. And the areas that saw the greatest increase was a double-digit increase in suicide and a double-digit increase in accidental drug, drug overdoses. And the researchers are calling these deaths of despair. So we talk about hope. It's, it's, not, it's not being melodramatic to say that our nation is facing a hope crisis, a hope shortage. And for many people, this idea, this, this struggle between hope and despair is not just a longing for fuzziness, it's actually a battle for life and death. So we talk about hope, the stakes are incredibly high. We're starting our conversation today with this whole idea about what does it, what does it mean to have hope for broken relationships? In the last five days, I've had these kind of phone conversations. A gentleman called me just completely distraught because his marriage is unraveling before his very eyes for reasons that he believed to be linked to infidelity. And a mother who's just, was just absolutely torn because she's got an adult son, a college-age son that is making choices in his life that are self-destructive. And she's afraid for his safety and for their family dynamic. And I, that I had another friend who is going through a personal crisis of his own, and he was really banking on the fact that a buddy of his would be available to him, but for whatever reason, that, that guy has, has been absent. He's been a no-show in his life. And so whether it's a marriage, whether it's a child, whether it's a friendship, some of us are having conflicts at work, and the fallout from those is very, very real. And the consequences for those are unnerving, and some of us are, are struggling with a sense of despair that those relationships might not ever be the same. And the good news today is that the God that we've been singing about is a God that is deeply committed to restoration. God cares about our relationships. One of the last lines of the First Testament said that God desires to turn hearts of children towards parents and parents towards children. 
The Apostle Paul in his letter to the Corinthians says, God has given us a ministry of reconciliation so we know that in spite of all of the chaos that we see, in spite of all of the ashes of kind of incinerated relationships around us, we know that God's heart is for reconciliation and restoration in our relationships. And if God has hope for that, then maybe we can have hope for it as well. So we look, we look at the text. We're gonna look at Luke chapter 15 today. We're gonna be reminded of a story that paints a picture of restoration. It's a story about a fool, a father, and a firstborn. Jesus tells it to a crowd that's not getting along. Jesus is speaking to an audience that has two groups in it. One is a group of tax collectors and sinners, people who are spiritual rebels. They're making really horrible choices with their lives. And then the other group is a kind of a batch of spiritual leaders, a, kind of a self-righteous people who look down on these others with great disdain because they're like, everything that's wrong with our country is you. So you have these two two components, two subgroups inside of the same spiritual family that, that aren't getting along. And Jesus starts with this story. He says, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. How many of you, like, you don't, please don't raise your hands, have learned that if you want to burn through money quickly having a good time, it's not hard. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country. If there's ever a bad time to be out of money, it's when there's no food. And he began to be in need. And he went and hired himself out to a citizen in that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. Now remember, this is scandalous. Why? Because Jesus is telling the story to a Jewish audience. Pigs are an unclean animal. So to be around pigs at all means that you're in a rough spot. To want to eat what they are eating is even worse. Do you know anything about pigs? You know that they are omnivores, which means they will eat anything. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Some of you may recognize this character as what church history calls the prodigal son. I'm calling him the fool in this episode because Psalm 14.1 says, the fool says in their heart, there is no God. And this young man is living as if there is no grid beyond his pursuit of personal pleasure. He's going to do whatever he wants. Maybe he did believe in God at one point, but God wasn't giving him what he wanted, so he was just going to take whatever he could get and take it now and take it on his terms. With no thought for how his actions would affect himself down the road or the people who care deeply about him. Now, some of us think that the biggest scandal in the story is that the father, who the son had deeply insulted, sent him away with money. I contend that the greatest scandal in the story is that the father didn't kill him on the spot. I'm not joking. Deuteronomy 21 says this, if someone has a stubborn and rebellious son who does not obey his father and mother and will not listen to them when they discipline him, his father and mother shall take hold of him and bring him to the elders at the gate of his town. Has anybody, don't raise your hands, had a child who you have disciplined that is not responding well to that in your home? Don't raise your hands. They shall say to the elders, this son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Does it sound like the prodigal son? Yes. What happens then? Then all of the men of the town are to stone him to death. You must purge the evil from among you. All of Israel will hear of it and be afraid. Every once in a while on the news, you'll hear about this horrific concept called honor killing 
where a particular family has a son or a relative or a daughter that has not upheld the family's code or their religion or their values, and an effort to restore honor to the family or the clan or the faith, they will literally take that person's life. This is a version of that. Under the Mosaic law in ancient Israel, parents were compelled to bring their rebellious sons to the village elders. And as an act of deterrent to keep order in the culture, they could kill that son. The father in this story is fully within his rights to drag that kid in front of the village elders at the gate and see this event transpire. So the scandal in the story isn't so much that he lets the son live. The scandal is that he lets him leave town alive. Eventually, he came to his senses and he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? Like the workers on my dad's farm, they they have leftovers. I have nothing. Here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. I love the line in there that says, while he was still a long way off. Parents, have you ever noticed that you could pick your kid out of a crowd anywhere? Like we've got a daughter who's in seventh grade band and they all wear the same uniform. They all have like the same outfit that they have to wear for the band concerts and we're all the way up in the balcony and within minutes we, we, can, we can pick her out. Or maybe you've been at a sporting event and all of your kids are wearing the same uniforms. Maybe they're wearing helmets. Just by the way that your son, by his gait, the way that he walks, or the way that he runs, or the way that he handles the ball, you're like, yep, that's my kid right there. It says that while he was still a long way off, the father could recognize his son either by his posture or by his silhouette or by his stride. What does that mean? What what does it tell us about the father? It means that he has had this this seat, this posture that is expectation that maybe today is the day that he'll get word that his son is alive or dead. Or better yet, maybe today is the day that his son will walk back through that gate. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And if I was a father, I would have said, you're right. But he didn't. The father said, quick, bring the best robe, put it on and put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast. Let's party this up. Let's celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother's come home, he replied, and your father's killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. And the older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes come home, you kill the fattened calf for him. 
My son, the father said, you are always with me. And everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and now he's found. So to be sure, this story is about God welcoming runaways back into the family. But the story is also about God restoring broken relationships within and between families and friends. See, I, th- I think that the story reminds us that relational restoration, hope for breakthrough in relationships requires three movements. And the first movement that is required, the first movement that can give us hope in our relationships is when we see repentance on all sides. When we see repentance on all sides. Verse 21 says, The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. He is right. His behavior has had a very serious impact on his family, on his faith community, and on his village. He doesn't deserve a timeout. He deserves to die. And he's self-aware enough to be able to say, I've sinned against God, who I was pretending didn't exist, and I've sinned against you, who I acted as if you didn't exist. And for this, I am sorry. The younger son is repenting. He is apologizing. He is acknowledging the impact that his selfish choices have had on others. His behavior was reckless and his actions were inexcusable. And in a perfect environment, the firstborn would have repented of his toxic resentment. His hard heart was indefensible. Before a relationship that's broken can be fully restored, everyone needs to acknowledge their failures. Whether you're the fool or the firstborn, you have to own your part in whatever it was that broke down. Recently, I read a management book by Kim Scott called Radical Candor, and she says that when an employer or a manager has to have a difficult uh, conversation with an employee, they can employ a model that is what she calls situation behavior impact. And in that, you sit down with a person and say, this is the situation that you were in, this was the choice that you made, this is the behavior that you displayed, and this was the impact, this was the result of that. And that can be helpful when we're having a confrontation. But when we on our own are doing our own confession, which is tell the truth, and repentance, which means turn around, sometimes we just need to start a note on our phone or take out a piece of actual paper and a pen and say, all right, it's time for me to have an honest conversation with God where I can confess what I've done. So I'm going to write down the situation that I was in. I'm going to write down the exact behaviors that I am responsible for. And then to my knowledge, I'm going to say this is how that's negatively affected or impacted the people around me. And then, when it's appropriate, I can apologize and I can make amends. And amends, all amends is, is when I say, hey, I know that I under, when I did this, I understand that I wronged you. And here's how I propose that I can make it right. And if you have any other ideas for how I can make it right, please let me know. I'm, I will do my best to make, to make this square, to get us back to zero. So if, if you're the fool, if you've played the prodigal, then today is your day to come home to come back with your apology in hand. But if you're the firstborn, you're not off the hook. You you got some work to do too. Recently, I've been reading a book called Recovery, and the author introduces a tool for processing resentment. If you've ever been through the 12 steps, you know that this is step four, where we take a fearless moral inventory. 
And the formula, the grid, the process for this is I list the name of a person. I resent this person because they are guilty of this action and that affected this portion of my life. And then the last step, the hard step is, and this is my part in the breakdown of that piece, of that connection. So let's, let's just, for the sake of argument, imagine that the firstborn son is gonna undertake this exercise. He would say, I, the firstborn, resent Junior because he dishonored my father and wasted a ton of money. And this has negatively affected my pride, my ambition, my finances, and my sense of security. He could say, I resent my father for letting my brother getting away with, get away with murder. And this has affected my self-esteem, my pride, and my personal relationships. Unfortunately, the older brother never gets to the fourth and most important stage of that process is to say, and this is, this is where I need to own my mistakes, my misplaced expectations, my fear, my self-seeking, my blame, my faults, or my wrong behavior in that process. If you've been the firstborn, it's not enough for you to say, that person made some horrible life choices, and when they can figure it all out, I will welcome them back. It means that we need to take a very direct and challenging and honest look in our interior world and say, even if all of my external behavior is right, where, where do I have hostility? Where do I have toxicity simmering right underneath the visible surface of my life? And just because I lived a squeaky, queen, squeaky clean life externally doesn't mean that I'm not harboring all sorts of anger and pride in my heart. If you wanna see relationships restored, you need to pray for repentance on all sides. And then you need to reframe the relationship. Look at what happens in verse 22. The father says to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. In this moment, the father resets the entire family dynamic. He doesn't brand the son as the black sheep. There's not an asterisk next to him in all of the family photos that says like, oh, by the way, this guy had a dark season and it ruined all of our lives. He says, you are the beloved son and I am your loving father. We're gonna figure this out and we're gonna reset the deck and we're gonna move forward together. He is a fully restored son and he is an equal participant at the family table. The father does a great job of modeling what we find in 1 Corinthians 13 that says love keeps no record of wrongs. Have you ever tried like, you know it's right to forgive somebody and you want to do it on the front end, but, it's, but you've got like maybe a little card with their wrongs and you're like, I'm just going to put this in my wallet or purse in case I need it later. Instead of burning that as we should. father gives him a ring and the ring maybe had a family crest on it so if he ever ran, ran into strangers the ring would be a reminder to him of his identity and then the father gave him a robe what did the robe do the robe covered all of his nakedness and his shame the robe was a symbol of forgiveness and then maybe my favorite it says that he gave him sandals and that might seem self-evident but here's here's what i thought about if i'm the dad and I'm an influential member of my community, and my son has embarrassed me, 
then maybe what I could do, one option is I could forgive him and he could still live on our property, but he lives the rest of his days in house arrest. Like I give him bread and water in the basement uh, and he can maybe come up for holidays, but he never gets to go to the mall because I don't want our family to be reshamed by having him just running out and about out there. When the father gives him shoes, what is he saying? He goes, you, you can go back to a normal life in this town. You can walk in and out of the city gates in front of the people who could have and should have killed you for your rebellion and know that you are fully forgiven and restored. So his father gives him mobility, he gives him security, he gives him favor again. All of these things that he doesn't deserve. One way that we can restore people or one way that we can reset a relationship when there's been brokenness is simply through the, simply through the act of prayer. Prayer acknowledges another person's worth before God and it creates an exercise, a space, a rhythm where we can reframe a relationship. A few of us here at Central have been on a year-long spiritual formation journey and one of the exercises, one of the tools that was given to us was what's called a a three-minute prayer challenge. Basically what they said is they find one person in your life and you pray for them for one minute and then you offer for them to pray for you for one minute and then you pray together for one minute. And they say, and if you don't know what to pray for together in that third minute, you can, just use, you can use the Lord's Prayer. And what we found in using this exercise is that people who had friendships that were in disarray or people that had marriages that kind of like flattened out, it, it injected a new sense of life and energy. And sometimes when people say like, oh, if your marriage is on the rocks, you guys need to pray together. And they're like, well, just tell me how. And this is a very simple way that you could do that. You could actually like set something in your calendar before you go to bed, instead of playing on your phones or watching TV, say, we're, gonna, we're just gonna black out three minutes. I'm gonna pray for you, you're gonna pray for me, and then we're gonna pray for our lives together. Try that for 20 days, just one hour over the course of three weeks, and see if the needle shifts at all towards hope, towards life, towards peace again. Maybe there's a person in your life who doesn't want to pray with you. Ask them if, they, if you can have their permission for you to just do it one way. Say, can I pray for you for one minute with you in the room? Is that, that, is that okay? Do I have your permission to try that? And if they say yes, then here's the challenge. Don't pontificate and don't manipulate. Parents, how many of you have ever been guilty of prayer to prayer like this? Dear God, thank you for my child. Please help him to be more respectful. That's not prayer, okay? That's like spiritual manipulation under the guise of like, I put Jesus at the front end of that sentence, so it's okay. It's not. Stop doing that. When we pray, what do we do? We, we, we bless people. We bless them, we bless them, we bless them. Even if you cannot affirm somebody's behavior, you can validate their worth between the God of all, before the God of all creation. Came across a quote by priest, theologian, and author Henry Nouwen this week, and he said, to give a blessing to another person is to affirm, to say yes to a person's belovedness. Do you know that it's possible to say yes to a person's belovedness and say no to their behavior? It is. And more than that, to give a blessing creates the reality of which it speaks. There's a lot of mutual admiration in this world, just as there is a lot of mutual condemnation. A blessing goes beyond the distinction between admiration or condemnation, between virtues or vices, between good deeds or evil deeds. A blessing touches the original goodness of the other and calls forth his or her belovedness. I want to ask you a very direct question. Is it possible that you, in the darkest seasons of your life, 
were making the most unwise choices because you lost sight of who God says you are. And if you had been aware of the fact that you are deeply loved by God, is it possible you might have chosen differently? And if that's the case, that instead of railing against people's behavior, what would happen if we elevated their understanding of their belovedness? Because you ever notice that you can change somebody's behavior, but their heart can still be hard? But if you remind them of their belovedness, it melts hard hearts and maybe later changes choices. So don't start with telling somebody what they're doing wrong. Start with reminding them of who they are to God and reminding them who they are to you, regardless of what they do or have done this week. So if you're the fool, today's the day to come home, to come home repenting with your apology in hand. And today, if you're the father, your challenge is to reframe that relationship to remind the people who are wandering away from you, reminding the people that your heart aches over that, that they matter to God and that they, they still matter to you. So no matter what's happening, keep scanning the horizon, keep praying, keep hoping that somebody would hit their bottom, come to their, come to their senses, and start the long walk home. So if you want to find hope for your relationships, you start with repentance, you move to reframing, and you end with rejoicing. And God's desire is there for there to be rejoicing on all sides. Verse 24, the father says, this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. The father pulls out all the stops. He throws a party that is both unnecessary and extravagant. It announces to the family, the staff, and the neighbors that there's not been a homecoming. There has been a resurrection. There's only one fatted calf It's already on the grill, and there will be no leftovers. Are you in or are you out? Are you in or are you out? Sometimes when we're struggling with despair, we ask this question. What will happen if God doesn't answer my prayers? What if I ask you this question? What would happen if he did? What would happen if he did? If you're facing a broken relationship, what would happen if God answered your prayer to turn that person's heart today? How would you respond? If a wayward wife walked back in the door of your living room today, what would you do? If a a wandering husband walked back into your bedroom today, how would you respond? If a child who has been destructive as an adult sends you an apology text over lunch, what's your first move? Do we immediately launch into, I'm glad to hear from you, let's rehash every hurtful thing that you've ever done, or do we flip straight to rejoicing mode in the power of the Spirit and by the grace of God? And is our exuberance obvious and unrestrained? The question I want to ask you is, if God answered your prayer, are you able to respond in a way that is both honoring to God and gracious to the person? Are you prepared to move forward? Are you prepared to receive them with joy? 
And are you prepared to forgive as you have been forgiven? See, ultimately, the story doesn't end with a party. The story ends with a question. Like many of the parables, many of the stories of scriptures, they end not fully resolved. They end with a pause. And the question that Jesus is asking the firstborn is, are you coming inside or not? Have you ever had like a family celebration and somebody felt like their feelings got slighted halfway through and they, they went out and they sat in their car or they locked themselves in a the bedroom or they went for a walk around the block and then somebody had to go chase them down and ask them to come back inside? That's what's happening in the story. And the father is saying to the older son, he goes, look, you protesting in the yard has no effect on what's happening in the house. That party is going to continue. People are going to have good, good times. Nobody's shutting down the band. Nobody's chasing people off the, the, the dance floor because you've, you're pouting out here. The only person who can change this is you. And here's what I love about the father. The brother says, your son did this. And what does the dad do? The dad does the thing that only a dad can do. He reframes the relationship. He goes, no, your brother, somebody who's connected to you, somebody who has a personal relationship to you, was dead and now he's not. I can't not celebrate. And what we realize in this story is that the brother, like many of us who have grown up good church people, like many of us who are good Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts, we did all of our homework, we got perfect attendance, we didn't do bad things, we've never been arrested, and we stayed out of detention. And you know what? Because of that, God owes me the things that I want. And when other people screw up, they should be punished. And we have kind of created this whole system that is based on merit and not on grace. And we like to skip over the parts that God holds us as accountable for our hard hearts as he holds him accountable for good times with prostitutes. We like to think that there are these, these levels of what is honoring to God. And even though his was public, doesn't make it any worse than mine that is private and is killing me, my relationship with God and the people around me. See, the, the brother's fatal flaw is that he was obeying the father, his heavenly father and his earthly father, not out of love or honor, but he was doing it out of self-interest. He was doing all the right things because he knew, because he was hoping that one day they would be a lever for him to be able to get what he wants. And the father's heart is breaking because he says, don't you understand, I have always been with you. And then he says this, and everything I have is yours. He's like, you're complaining that I never gave you a goat. He goes, I never told you that you couldn't take a goat. Like if a goat would have made you and your, your, your fraternity brothers happy, then fire it up. Like take, it, take a goat, knock it out, have good times. He's like, God says, everything, I've, everything I have is yours. Paul reminds us this. He goes, in Christ, all of the promises that we have are what? They're yes. He goes, so for us to cross our arms and furrow our brow and say, I can't believe that person got away with that is a fundamental misunderstanding of our belovedness. A world when I, where I don't believe that I am loved and a world where I believe that you shouldn't be loved is a world that is both devoid of peace, joy, and love. And the reason that some of our relationships are broken is not just because somebody else screwed up. 
It's because our resentment over their mistake has injected an unresolvable power dynamic into that relationship. And Jesus is saying, is this how you want to play this? Or can you rejoice because they turned a new page? Can you rejoice because they came home? Are you gonna join the party? Because there's a great band and good food and epic dancing. Or are you gonna pout on the lawn? If you played the fool, today's a great day to come home with your apology in hand. God, I've sinned against you and I've hurt other people in my life. I'm ready to start over. I'm ready to make amends. If you're the father, are you ready to keep hoping, keep praying, keep seeking, keep blessing? And if you're the firstborn, are you ready to take all of your resentments and lay them down and all of your fears about not getting your needs met your way in your timeline and believe that Christ always is and always has been enough for you. Are you ready to do that? Because if you are, then there's hope for your relationship. 